So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, verse 1, This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now, we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things while I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'd ask you please to have your Bible open again with me then at 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 13. And it is a joy to be with you. Um, it's joy to have met somebody, Emily, I can't remember what her married name is, uh, but who I've known since she was a tiny little girl in Enfield, North London, and so it's great to see her here, here, but thank you for your welcome, and thank you, Nigel, wherever you are, can't see you, where's he gone? Oh, he's babysitting, oh, he doesn't want to hear the gospel, never mind, um, uh, but thank you for asking, I'd want to say thank you for asking me how you can pray for me, but actually I want to turn the question back on you now. I want to ask you, how are you praying for Emmanuel Church Epsom? What do you want others to be praying for you and the other members of this local church? Uh, when someone like me, a fellow disciple of our Lord Jesus, turns up and says to you, how can I pray for you as a local church, how would you reply? Actually, let me change the question. It's not really what you want us to pray for you that matters. The best question is, how does the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, want you to ask for prayer? 
Now, as Paul reached the end of his letter to the first century church in Corinth, a church he dearly loved, he tells them exactly how he was praying for them. You can see it in verse 14. It's also on the screen. Here's what Paul prays. He prays, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, my guess is they're familiar words to most of us. Uh, We've probably said them so often, they just trip off the tongue. But have we ever really thought about what we're praying when we say the words of what we call the grace? I want to suggest to you this morning that Paul's prayer sums up all that we need as Christians and all that is available for us. Uh, This prayer sums up what every believer needs with them all of the time. This prayer sums up what a church fellowship needs together as God continues his restoring work in our lives. Now, I talk about God's restoring work particularly because we mustn't take this prayer out of the context of the letter that it concludes. If you've got your Bible, look back to verse 9, all right? Paul says in verse 9, the second half of verse 9, what he's praying for the Corinthian church. He says there, our prayer is that you may be fully restored. Now that word restored is rendered in other translations as perfection or completion. The reason why Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church was that everything wasn't right in that church. Oh oh yes, its members had been reconciled to God through faith in our Lord Jesus. But the trouble is that they'd slipped back. Things were not as they should have been, and a mending job, a restoring work was required. Uh, Let me take you back to the Gospels. Do you remember that occasion when the Lord Jesus was by the Sea of Galilee, and we're told that there were some men there, they were fishermen, and they were mending their nets? That word mending is the same word used here for restoring. It's the idea of putting things right again, making something fit for purpose. And in the church at Corinth in the first century, restoration was needed. Restoration is at the heart of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus came into the world to restore us to what we were made to be. Uh, Made in the image of God, we were made to be with God, and we were made to be like God, reflecting his perfection. That perfection was corrupted by the fall of our first parents, but then our Lord Jesus came. And through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, he came to renew God's image in us, to bring us into relationship with God to make us more and more like God, to restore us. And Paul's prayer that the Corinthian believers be fully restored is a reminder that every believer is a work in progress. I met a man many years ago called Dunkey Donaldson. Um, I was brought up in Scotland. Dunkey Donaldson was well known in the town of Airdrie in the west of Scotland. Before he, Jesus took hold of him, he was the most famous drunk in Airdrie. He was a big bloke. And I'm talking big. 
His party trick was to take a six-inch nail and put it in his teeth and bend it. And I saw him do it. He could do it. He was a big bloke. You wouldn't mess with him on a Saturday night when he was drunk. But the Lord Jesus took hold of him. And the first time I ever encountered him, he was being interviewed. uh, And when he stood up to be interviewed, he he had this on his T-shirt. P-B-P-W-N-G-N-F-Y-M-Y. And of course, the first question he asked was, what does this mean? Do you know what it means? Please be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. Now that is true for every believer. It's true for every member of this local church. Wonderfully, we are not what we once were. In Christ, as 2 Corinthians says earlier, we are new creations. But we are not yet what we will be when Christ returns and we are fully conformed to his likeness. We are in a state of ongoing transformation. And Paul's prayer was that God's restoration work would continue in the lives of the members of Corinth Evangelical Church as God answered the prayer with which he ends the letter. Verse 14, look at it again, these familiar words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, looking at these familiar words, I want us to think about three realities of the Christian life which show why we need this prayer, which are matched by three truths about the Trinity set out in this prayer, which provide us with confidence for whatever lies ahead. What are the three realities? The three realities are sins, troubles, and loneliness. First of all, sins. Sins that confirm our undeservedness. Uh, If you've got kids, do you ever play that word association game? You say a word and you say, what word do you think immediately? You know, so dog, cat. You know know the idea. If I say to you the word grace, I wonder what other words immediately come to mind. For me, whenever I hear the word grace, I think undeserved. You see, what is grace? It is the undeserved kindness of God. The emphasis is on God doing something for us which we do not deserve. So in a minute, we're going to sing that hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, an undeserving sinner like you. Now, as I look out at you this morning, what do I see? I see people just like me. And I'm not being rude, I'm just being biblical when I say to you that you are each skilled, experienced sinners. Now, many of us, I'm sure, as I do, rejoice that we're justified by faith in our Lord Jesus. But as we thought about Dunkey Donaldson, it doesn't mean we're perfect. We're works in progress. As one older writer put it, the holiest saint is in himself a miserable sinner and a debtor to mercy and grace to the last minute of his existence. So so deeply planted are the roots of our corruption that even after we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified, the roots of sin remain alive in our hearts. 
and we'll never be fully rid of them until we reach glory. Which is why we need ongoing grace. If you've got your Bible, just glance back to the end of chapter 12 and look at verse 20. Uh, Paul there is anticipating a visit back to Corinth, this church he loved, and look what he says in verse 20. He says, For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as you want me to be, and you, uh, as, as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they've indulged. Isn't that an ugly list? But notice that Paul isn't speaking about the non-Christian world. He's talking about the Christian, those in the church. These kind of things were what were spoiling their life and testimony as God's people. It's why they needed to be restored. And before we point the finger at them, doesn't our experience confirm that it's true with us as well? Oh, look, even this last week, I know what it is to have started a day resolved and praying that I might live a godly life, that I might be pure in thought, in word, uh, controlled in action. But it's not long into the day before I go, why did I dwell on that thought? Why did I say that thing that was so insensitive? Why did I do that? And however long we've been Christians, sin still spoils our lives individually. It spoils our life together in churches. There's no perfect church because there's no perfect believers. Which is why we need the matching riches of Christ's grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, the riches of his undeserved kindness. Whenever the Bible speaks of grace, it's always speaking about something lavish and generous. It's never something restricted or stingy. So think with me for the moment of the most generous thing that any human being has ever done for you. It might be a parent, a friend, a teacher, a colleague, perhaps just a stranger did something amazingly kind to you. Let me tell you that nothing compares to the riches of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Uh, the heart of being a Christian is this knowledge of the grace of Jesus, his astonishing grace. Paul describes it earlier in 2 Corinthians. You know, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become Rich. So what do I deserve as a sinner? And confirm again and again and again by my repeated sins that I deserve. I deserve the eternal poverty of hell. But what does the Lord Jesus guarantee for me again and again by his grace? He guarantees the eternal riches of heaven. And what is the basis of that guarantee? Well, it's that swap that he performed. 
for me and for all his people at the cross. Uh, Consider for a moment the, the contrast between riches and poverty. I looked at the BBC website this morning. It was saying there's a new wealthiest person in the UK and he was a plumber's son or something, something like that. You know, talking about mega bucks. Can't imagine it, can you? Imagine the contrast, though, between ultimate riches and ultimate poverty. Uh, What's ultimate riches? Ultimate riches is having everything with no lack of any kind. Do you agree with that? Ultimate poverty is having nothing. I mean really nothing, not even a set of clothing. Now think of Jesus. He had everything, didn't he? He had ultimate riches. In heaven he lacked nothing of any kind. But what did he do in his grace? He chose to give it all up as he became a man. And on the cross, he chose to become poor, stripped naked. He had absolutely nothing. And he did it so that undeserving sinners like me might have the riches of his grace now and forever. And it's that grace, friends, that as Christians we keep needing. The grace that forgives again and again. The grace that restores, mends us again and again. The grace that transforms us more and more into his likeness. The grace that supplies all that we need in our weakness again and again. The riches of God's grace. Uh, Here's the word grace. Some of you will know this. Uh, You can make it into a word, the first letters of the letters of the word grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That is the gospel. That's the good news. If you're not a Christian, that's what I want you to know about today. But can I suggest another way of thinking about grace? Just a follow-on, which is also true. Here's what grace is. God's resources available constantly every day. What should members of a local church be praying for each other? that as skilled sinners who keep confirming our undeservedness, that we will keep relying on and experiencing the rich grace of our Lord Jesus again and again and again and again. Uh, My dad's old now, but he he was a pastor. And uh, he tells the story of how many years ago he was invited to preach at a series of meetings in Northern Ireland. And along with the other speakers at this conference, they were put up in a small private hotel. So he arrived on the Saturday night after a long journey from Scotland, and in the room he was given, he noticed that there was an orange on a plate with a knife and a serviette. Uh, And he was hungry. Uh, He'd had a long journey, so he sat on the edge of the bed and he enjoyed his orange. Uh, The next day was Sunday, he went off to church, preached at church, came back to his room, there was another orange there. So he sat down on his bed, ate it and enjoyed it. And and each day as he went off to speak to the meetings he was speaking, every time he came back to the room, there was another orange. And each day he had an orange and it was refreshing. You know, when you're living in somewhere that's not home, it's nice to have something like that. Imagine his amusement when on the Thursday, he went down to, to breakfast. And the wife of one of the other speakers said, um, do you know, I did enjoy that orange today that was in our room on Saturday. 
My dad replied, you've only had one orange? He said, let me count. I had one on Saturday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. I've had six oranges. You've only had one. The speaker's wife, you see, had imagined that one orange was the lot. So she'd stored it up. But my dad discovered that as soon as one orange was eaten, another one replaced it. The grace of our Lord Jesus is like that, friends. We don't have to store it up. It is inexhaustible. As often as we need it, it is available to us. But I need to move on. I've spent most time on that. Because what's the second reality? It's troubles that cause sorrow. Uh, we don't have time to read right through 2 Corinthians, but if we did this morning, we'd discover that it's a letter in which the Apostle Paul bears his soul. And as he bears his soul, he doesn't hide the truth that the normal Christian life involves sorrow causing troubles. So right at the beginning of the letter, he speaks about him and his companions experiencing great trouble in the province of Asia. In fact, he says it was such great pressure that they despaired even of life itself. Uh, and then if you know 2 Corinthians, you'll know that in chapter 11, he gives this long list of troubles that he faced as he served the Lord Jesus. He says, I've been imprisoned, I've been flogged, I've been exposed to death again and again, I've been beaten five times with 40 lashes minus one, I've been beaten with rods three times, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked three times, I've been in danger of bandits, I've had sleepless nights, I've been hungry, I'm thirsty, what a list it is. Is he boasting? No. Uh, he's giving his testimony to expose the lie of what we would call the prosperity gospel. Uh, the non-gospel that declares, come to Jesus and all your troubles will be over. That is not the true gospel the Bible teaches. Because having become Christians, we remain human beings. And to be human is to experience troubles. We're not exempt as people, as believers. And there are the kinds of troubles that all human beings face. There are also particular troubles that believers in Jesus face as we live for him. But whatever kind of troubles they are, look, you know they come, and they come again, and they come again, and again, and again. They cause hurt. They bring tears. They often create confusion and distress in our hearts. What do we need? We need the matching comfort of God the Father's love. You see, yes, I, I've talked a lot so far about us being sinners. But if we're believing in the Lord Jesus this morning... What has happened as we believed in the Lord Jesus? Well, we've been reconciled to God the Father. We're in a relationship with him. And right at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul describes God the Father as the, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Uh, and that word comfort uh, describes the love that, and you know what this is like, the love that comes along alongside. The love that assures us that our compassionate Father is in control and he knows what he is doing. And in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, look, 
that God, our compassionate Father, the God of all comfort, he, he shows us comfort. Why? So that then we might be able to share that comfort with others. How should the members of a local church like this one pray for each other? Should we pray that so-and-so would have a trouble-free life? Should we pray that we'd have a a tear-free life or or a trial-free life? No, that is not the way the Bible says we should pray for one another. Rather, we should pray that in the reality of troubles that bring sorrow to our hearts, we would know the matching comfort of the love of God the Father. You may have heard the name William Carey. He was a missionary to India for 15 years. He worked to translate the Bible into various Indian languages. In 1812, a fire destroyed his printing press and thousands of manuscripts he translated. They were the only copies. Imagine his distress. Imagine his sorrow. What did he do? (laughs) He started again. And in a letter back to the UK, he wrote, To us at the present... The providence is exceedingly dark. What kept him going in his trouble? It was the comfort of the Father's love. And so this prayer that Paul prays for this dearly loved church, it matches the realities of sins, the grace of our Lord Jesus. It matches the reality of our sorrows, the love of God the Father. And finally, it deals with loneliness. The loneliness that comes from following. Again, if we had the chance to read through 2 Corinthians completely this morning, we discover that as he goes through it, Paul confirms over again that as a follower of the Lord Jesus, he discovered that following the Lord Jesus meant walking lonely paths. Think of Jesus. Think of how lonely his path was. Jesus was alone when he was arrested in the garden and all the disciples deserted him. Jesus was alone when he was led before the Sanhedrin. No one was there to speak in his defense. Jesus, yes, I know there were two criminals either side, but he was alone as he hung dying on the cross, experiencing forsakenness even by God the Father. And as Paul followed the Lord Jesus he too experienced loneliness. So I've already gone through that list of those troubles. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he talks about being in a position where everyone had deserted him. He was alone. And why do we learn this about him? Because actually faithfulness as a Christian can be a lonely place to be. It can be true individually. It can actually be true for a local church in a community. Leadership can be lonely. You need to pray for your pastor. Standing out as a disciple at work or at school can be lonely. Sins and troubles are often uh, such that they're, they're so personal that the experience of them is lonely. So what do we need? Well, you know the pattern now, don't you? We need the matching closeness of the Holy Spirit's Fellowship. Fellowship is a word that speaks of close association. 
And it reminds us of that awesome truth that I think we take for granted. That having received the grace of our Lord Jesus in salvation, and therefore having been reconciled to the God the Father, that we might know him as Father and know his love, God the Holy Spirit then comes and indwells us. He, the Holy Spirit, is God's seal of ownership, a deposit in our hearts, guaranteeing what is to come. And it is his presence with us that means we're never alone. I loved my wife being with me. I wish she was with me today. She couldn't be. But my wife isn't as close to me as the Holy Spirit is. We can't have anyone closer to us than residing in our hearts. And as we think about this prayer that we're so familiar with, we just need to recognize that the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit, they're three inseparable things. Because God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they always work together in harmony. How is it that I experience the grace of the Lord Jesus, both initially in salvation and then on an ongoing way? It's only through the indwelling fellowship of the Holy Spirit. How do we experience the comforting love of God in our troubles? Only through the indwelling fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just individual. It may well be that this phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it points to the fellowship the Spirit creates between believers. You see, one of the issues in Corinth was that they turned their backs on Paul. Uh, they were following false teachers who denied the place of suffering in the Christian life. And turning their backs on Paul, they were turning their backs actually on the Lord Jesus and the pathway he calls us to follow. And why does Paul write his letter? Well, he longs for restoration. Part of that restoration was he longed for restoration of the close fellowship, the close relationship that he'd once had with the members of this local church. He wanted them to know the forgiving, restoring, transforming, supplying, sufficient grace of the Lord Jesus. He wanted them not to avoid suffering, but in suffering to know the comfort of the Father's love. And he knew that this would only happen by the miraculous working of God's Spirit in their hearts. Because it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to know that, as it were, glue that unites us together. You see, this prayer isn't just for each of us individually. It's for us together as the people of God. We together need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We together need the comfort of God the Father. We together are totally dependent upon the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. How do you get on packing for holidays? I have a problem with packing for holidays. I, I go to two extremes. I either take too much or I take too little. So I go on holiday and I take too much and think, why on earth did I take all this stuff with me? Or there's other occasions where I go on holiday and think, why didn't I pack another jumper? It's freezing and I haven't got a jumper with me or whatever. You, you had that experience? Either too much or too little. All that we need individually and together as the people of God is packed, as it were, in this prayer. 
It perfectly matches all that we will possibly face, whether it's sins, troubles, loneliness, and everything connected as we live by faith in Jesus. It reveals all that we should be praying that those who are not yet Christians would come to enjoy just as we do. Do you want a favorite story to end? Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who ended up in a Nazi concentration camp because she and her family protected Jews during World War II. Uh, and she told the story that when she was a little girl, she told her daddy that she was afraid that she would never be strong enough be, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus and to, if necessary, be a martyr for him. Very relevant when you lived under Nazism. Her father replied like this. He said, tell me, Corrie, when you take a train trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the tickets? Three weeks before? Oh, no, Daddy, she said. You give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, her father said. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you need things today. Today you do not need the strength to be a martyr, but as soon as you are called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. And Corrie ten Boom's experience when she ended up in the concentration camp was that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit was sufficient for everything she faced. And so it will be for all God's people, including us. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian. This prayer helps us understand what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who lives relying upon these things. Uh, you become a Christian by relying on the generous grace of Jesus Christ. And to receive that, you need to accept your own personal undeservedness. But if you'll do that, then you will be reconciled to God the Father. You'll start knowing the comfort of his love. And you will know the indwelling fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You will know also the fellowship the Holy Spirit gives with all others who are dependent upon the grace of the Lord Jesus.